Almighty God, Father and Maker of heaven and earth, would you make us know our end and what are the measure of our days? Let us know how fleeting we are. Behold, you have made all our days, and they are but a few handbreadths. Our lifetimes and generations are nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely we all go about as shadows. Surely it is for nothing that we run here and there, toiling, frustrated, frantic to keep up. We each heap up wealth and then, and then do not know who will finally be able to enjoy it. Grant your spirit this morning to see the vanity of these things and the good that comes from the hand of Jesus Christ. And now, O Lord Jesus, for what do we wait? May our trust, O Lord, be in you and you alone. Deliver us from our foolish attempts to find joy and hope and satisfaction in the pleasures and trinkets of this world. As we so often do this, we dismiss your promises, and these promises are of so much great, greater and better reward. We ask this morning that you will do these things for us, that you will accomplish these great things for us by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, for you are indeed our only source of true delight. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes 7. Last week we were working through the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter 6. We worked through that book, and Kohelet, who's also referred to as the preacher in Ecclesiastes 1.1, confirmed that even though the world around us attempts to convince us that it can give us joy and satisfaction and true good, that finally, only after they seek to offer that, do we find that they, in fact, cannot, that these empty substitutes only leave us more convinced that the world is indeed what the author of Ecclesiastes says, and that is, it is full of vanity. There is nothing in the world that can satisfy our heart or cause us to find satisfaction and joy and hope, but instead it is only those who turn with an eye to the heavens, turn away from the the world under the sun, if you will, and instead turn to God in fear of Him, Looking to Him for being our delight and our joy, can we find true meaning and validity in our lives? We came to the end of chapter 6. If you will look there with me. At the end of chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes, in verses 10 through 12, and it ends in these verses. Let me read them for you. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage of man? Now notice here in verse 12, I want you to notice these two questions that are being asked. Specifically, this first question is being asked in verse 12 of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Do you see that first question there in verse 12? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? This is the question that Kohelet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, picks up on in chapter 7. 
And he begins working through in chapter 7 to answer this question. Who knows what is good for man while he lives on this earth? This short time, this shadow-like life that we live. He's going through then, if you notice in chapter 7, notice with me here, you can just simply cursory look over the chapter here. And you see in verse 2, it is better. Verse 3, sorrow is better. Verse 5, it is better for man. Then we look down in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing. Over and over again, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, this good that man cannot find on earth, he's laying before us now. He's saying, this is what is good on earth as we live our days on this earth. What, what, who, knows what is good, who knows what is good for man while he lives in these few days? Well, God does. And he's telling us in these passages in chapter 7 what that looks like. Now, as he goes through this, he shows us over and over again as we look at chapter 7 that we are powerless and estranged from any knowledge of what may be good. In fact, our assumptions and our conclusions will almost automatically go to the things of the world. We will think that the things of the world are where we find our good from, where we can find our joy and our satisfaction. But here in chapter 7, he'll show us over and over again that it's not the things of the world that we're going to find our good in, but the things of God. The things of the world are fleeting. They're only here for a little while. They're vanity. But yet God has called us to turn from this life of a shadow, this vapor-like life that we live in, and instead turn to God and find those things that are in fact good. So how might we discern the good that are in our short days that we're to live, each and every one of us given only a short period of time? The good for our lives is not merely some magic set of tasks we see in chapter 7 that we can add to our life. In other words, we're going along. Now we've got these extra few things that we can do now and add to our life, and now our lives can be good. No, that's not how it works. Nor is good something that we can Google search for and find the answer as we look, on, uh, look at the world's wisdom. The good of our lives, brothers and sisters, the good of our lives will only come from God. And it's not something that we can simply tack onto our lives, but instead it is something that we will come to discover as we reflect and meditate on our God through His Word and by the power of His Spirit. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be doing. As we look this morning, we know that we're going to be looking through chapter 7. Notice with me, if you will, just chapter 7 on face value. Many of you in your Bibles, if you look at that, you notice simply by the format of the text. In other words, the way it's laid out here in your Bible. Notice that it's different than the way chapter 6 was laid out. And even later in chapter 7. It's actually more poetic. It's actually Proverbs that are being, uh, being brought forward here in chapter 7 in the portion of text that we're in this morning. And so as we look at these Proverbs together this morning, I want, us to, I want to give you an opportunity to, to reflect on these, to, to work through them, to give you some handles maybe, if you will, so that as we look at these Proverbs together, and as we move through these, we'll probably take a, a few weeks to work through chapter 7 and these Proverbs together. We're going to take them in, in chunks at a time. That we'll be able to meditate on these and begin asking ourselves, how can I move from the assumptions that I make that are things that are good for my life, and turn to and understand the importance and value of the things that are better for me. That God says is better for my life. The things that are in fact good as I look to them together. So, I want us to uh, understand that as we work through this, this is going to be a little different in way of a sermon. A little different in way of how we're going to be handling the text. Simply because, again, these are Proverbs. These are Proverbs. And so, this is the main thing that I want you to understand. First is... That God wants our best. God wants our best. 
He wants what is best for us. The Lord wants us to have hearts that are filled with joy and hope and confidence. He does not want us to be bitter and in turmoil. And yet, here as we look at God's word this morning, we're going to find that the things that God turns us to are not things that our hearts will naturally or commonly think are the best for us. And let me explain to you, let me reiterate to you something that you may know intellectually, but you're going to have to press into your heart this morning. God knows best. You don't know best. God knows best. His word is true. And when my heart and affections push against God's word, then I need to ask the Lord to grant me his spirit that I might submit to what he is saying because God knows best, not I. Now, I want us to consider this morning the four points of the sermon, of which, like I said, we might only get to the first two. All right? I know, I know some of you are coming unglued at this point. I like structure as well, but we'll see how far we can get here this morning with all of the unusual things that are going on. Point number one, point number one is a better day. <clears throat> point number one, a better day. Point number two, and point number one is actually verse one. Point number one, verse one, a better day. Point number two, verse two, a better place, a better place. Point three, point three, this is verses three and four, a better emotion, a better emotion. And then point number four, verses five and six is a better word, a better day, a better place, a better emotion, a better word. Now look with me, if you will, at the text, verses, verses one through six of chapter seven, a better day. Look with me. Is the day of death. You see that? Point number two, a better place. Look at verses, verse two, a better place, house of mourning. You see that? Point number three, a better emotion. Look at verses three and four. What's the better emotion? Sorrow. Point number four, a better word, verses five through six, a better word. What's the word of rebuke coming from the wise? You see that? So we're going to be simply walking right through the text this morning and looking at what God's word has to say for us as we consider what is better for us than what we often assume is good for our lives. We're told often even by the world that it's good to start with the beginning or to begin with the end in mind, to begin with the end in mind. However, most, when they think of that, they think of the end in mind as something they can put on their calendar, a vacation or maybe financial independence. And what date do I want to put on the calendar of when that can happen in my life or, or maybe an early retirement? One who has the end in mind, many of us have something within our lifetime that we can plant and say, this is what we want to live for. But according to the, Ecclesi the Ecclesiastes here, according to the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's telling us that there's nothing in this world. There's nothing that we can put on our calendar, nothing under the sun that we can begin to think about that we need to understand as the end that we should be considering. Instead, the end that we should be considering, listen to the preacher as he explains the better day in point number one, verse one. The better day, he says, verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, ponder with me for a moment on the first phrase of this verse. A good name is something that is 
Not merely something that a person, one person calls another person. That's not what's being spoken of here. Instead, it is an expression that speaks of a person's nature, his character, who that person is, what that person has lived like, what he's proved himself to be over a period of a long period of time. We know that each person may have made poor choices and all of us have failed in significant ways in our lives. And yet we hope that we are not simply marked by that one failure in our lives, in our life, but instead we're marked by an extended understanding of who we are and what we've done as a people. We're, we're proved over the years of, of who we are and who we are known to be. Week after week, year after year, who would someone else describe you as being? This is the name that you have. This is the character that people understand you to have. So a good name is something that is likely given to us, not at the beginning of our lives, but at the end of our lives. It is something that a person uh, earns, something a person obtains after many, many choices in many, many years. Our text says that this good name then is better than precious ointment. Think with me. Perfume that may cost a lot of money. This is precious ointment, it says. It may cost a good bit. It may require a lot of effort. It may require uh, working many, many days to be able to acquire or obtain this precious ointment. Once it's applied, this ointment will soon fade away. Not only will the memory of the scent be forgotten, but have you ever tried to explain that scent to someone else? It just doesn't work. Hard to explain it. This concept is being set forward then by the proverb. He knows this is true. And in Proverbs 22.1, we have a similar proverb. It says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. This passing value of great riches, of silver, of gold, or, or even precious ointment, is not to be set over the long-earned good name and reputation of a person. The truth then is evident. Why would one value something which can so quickly come and go, like riches or even precious ointment, to something that is earned over a period of long enduring and marks a person as who they really are? Something is transient and here now and gone later to something that is enduring and abiding. Why would you do that? In other words, here's another way of saying it. Why value those things that are merely external, ascent, riches, value, silver? Why would you value something that's external and pass over those things that are internal and enduring? Why would we do that? Now, I ask those questions. Is this a question that we need to ask ourselves today in this world? It is. We have given ourselves to believe that a person is who they are as they present themselves to be. How many times have you, have you uh, understood somebody to be one person, maybe through, their, um, maybe through their social media feed, and you have these ideas of who they are, you've seen pictures of them, they have their profile picture on there, and then you go and visit that person and you realize this is not the person that's on the, that's on the screen. It's completely different. Why? Well, who are they really? Are they the person that they are online? Are they the person that they are when you're in their presence? Brothers and sisters, we have lost this ability to understand the value of a person being who they are, the name of a person, their character, who they really are. 
We need to regain the fact that what really matters is who a person really is. These things are evident truths that we all know. Well, what I was saying earlier, I want you to remember what Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes here, Kohela, is saying is that these things that are good in our lives are not so evident. Well, that's evident, isn't it? A good name is better than precious ointment. That, that's evident. So why is he giving us this evident truth to help us understand just how evident this other truth should be? He's comparing these two truths and he's saying just as evident as anybody in this room should understand that a good name that is, that is brought forward through a, a lifetime of, of living and making consistent decisions who a man or a woman is and what they are and who they prove themselves to be over many, many years is so much more valuable than ointment that's here today and gone tomorrow. That's so evident, it should be just as evident this next truth that we find in our passage in verse 1. And it is this, and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death, brothers and sisters, is better and is just as good and valuable and enduring as the day of our birth. Now, that doesn't sound right, does it? Now, you, you read it, you can, you can see that that's what it's saying. But there's something in all of us that are saying, wait a minute, I'm not so sure that that's how I'm wired. That's not what I naturally assume. Let's, let's take a poll. How many of us celebrate our birth? How many of us are looking forward to the best day, which is the day of our death? We don't live that way, do we? This truth is just as evident as the previous one. We need to allow this truth to press into our lives and help us realize, wait a minute, I might be living contrary to what Scripture says is true and what God says is best for me. In other words, what is better for my life? What's the good, as it says in verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his life? It is good for us to acknowledge and live under, the, under this truth that the day of, our, be, our, day of our, our death is better and will be better than the day of our birth. We naturally do not assume this. We naturally do not live this way. In fact, we've, we've almost unknowingly completely ordered and orchestrated our entire lives contrary to this very truth. Some of us this morning were fearful to come here because you've heard of all the people that were sick. Maybe I'll get sick. Right? Let's think about the overall understanding of the book of Ecclesiastes. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is now weighing on this passage and on this particular truth. If all is vanity of vanities, that's the book of Ecclesiastes, right? If all is vanity of vanities and the world and everything in it is vapor-like, and has no real substance and meaning in and of itself. If everything is under the sun, if we're living just for those things in a secular kind of worldview that doesn't acknowledge God who is in heaven, it is much like the scent from the precious ointment. Our days are here today, and they'll be gone tomorrow. They're not going to last. They're, they're only an instant. They're like a vapor. They float away. If that is true, the book of Ecclesiastes and the theme, then we must say that the day of our birth is the entering into such vanity and struggle, such hardship and sorrow. That should not then be our best day. 
That should not then be the day that we find most treasured in our life. That was not the greatest day of joy and hope for any of us. It was the day that we entered into this world broken and filled with sorrow and vanity. And we're having to figure out how to work ourselves through it in such a way that we do not so cling to this world that we're living for only the things that are vanity. Instead, instead, the final day, the final day of our vanity, brothers and sisters, is better than the day of our birth. Don't miss this point. The proverb here is not, it is not morbidly idolizing death. That's not the point here. Instead, it is saying we need to flip our understanding of what is good and how we're to live our lives. To the degree that you live for this world, those things under the sun, the pleasures and the trinkets and the ambitions of this world, the day of your birth will be what you and your heart hearkens for. You will revel for the day that you can be younger. You will live your lives trying to be younger. You will idolize and the culture will idolize not the old, not those who have lived their lives and have a good name, but the young who are trite and flippant and drinking deeply of the world. Isn't that the culture we live in? The day of the birth then is the day that's idolized, that's lifted up, that's exalted. Everyone wants to get closer to their day of birth, not closer to the day of their death. In fact, there are people that are Um, My mom actually was telling me yesterday of a lady that's in her church that's in her 90s, and she refuses to allow anyone to tell her that she's old. Well, she's old. That's just the way it is. I mean, you don't get much older. It's just that's, that's that's where it gets, right? I mean, there's hardly anybody on earth that can say that she's not. But she refuses to acknowledge that. It's the day of our death that is more precious, more valuable. The verse that is being, or the truth that's being spoken here, isn't an unusual one. It's not one that's simply found here in, in this in this archaic book in the book of in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes and, uh, and buried in this wisdom literature. This isn't the only place where we see this truth. We see this truth when Paul speaks in, in Philippians when he's when he's ministering to the church there in Philippi, and he says this: "For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain." My best day will be when I die. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Which, uh, which, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed, Paul says, between the two. Verse 23 of chapter 1 of Philippians. My desire is to depart to be with Christ. For that is far better. This isn't just Paul's aim. This is what every spirit-filled man or woman of God has understood throughout the history of the church. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, says the best moment of the Christian's life is his last one. Because it is the one that he's nearest to heaven. Richard Sibbs was known as one of the Puritans. He was called the heavenly dropper because he was such a a sweet and precious comforter of souls. Richard Sibb says, death will be, death will be the death of my misery, the death of my sins, the death of my corruptions, but death will be my birthday in regard of happiness. Adoniram Judson, one of the first Baptist missionaries, went to Burma. He says this, 
When Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness of a boy bounding away from his schoolhouse. I think of uh, Rocco when I think of that because he, he loves leaving school. John Calvin says, we may, passive, we may positively state that nobody has made any progress. Did you hear that? We may positively state that nobody has made any progress in the school of Christ, listen, unless he cheerfully looks forward towards the day of his death. Thomas Watson, for the child of God, death, death is the funeral of all his sorrows. John Bunyan, again, I mentioned him last week. Remember he was in prison? He wrote this, John Bunyan, the Baptist Puritan. Death is but a passage out of a prison into a palace. As he was sitting in prison himself. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, says this. I am packed, sealed, and waiting for the post. Who would desire to live always in this poor, wretched world? The older one gets, I think the more the Lord gives us that heart, that understanding. Now, this isn't just Paul's declaration, because he was quite a, quite a man. This isn't just uh, admirable saints throughout the history of the church that had this understanding. This is the calling that God gives to each and every one of us, brothers and sisters. This is what Paul tells the church there in Colossae. He tells them this. He says in Colossians chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters who are here this morning, I want to speak to you specifically this morning. I want you to be aware of this. Let me read this truth to you because I want you to hear it again. It is better to go to the house, excuse me, uh, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death than the day of birth. Listen, this truth, this truth, brothers and sisters, is the last one you'll ever have to believe. Did you hear me? It's the last one you'll ever have to believe. It's the last one that you're going to be clinging to on that last day of your life. All who are in Christ... I call you now to consider that the last moments of your life will be this final test. The last truth to be claimed, to be received, to be clung to by your frail and fickle faith. But nonetheless, a faith in Christ who is strong and sure and is our Savior. You will be called on that last day of yours to believe this very truth. That that day that you're in. That last breath that you will take will be the best you ever know. And we will die not fighting and scratching, but instead with joy and with rejoicing. 
Praising the Lord that He has brought us through and He's kept us to the end. When we open our eyes on the other side of that sea, we will have seen our Savior. When you close your eyes here in death, you will receive the promised hope of glory. That your longing soul so often in this world and even this week has fought for. And you fought for alongside of all of these saints that are sitting in this room here together. We've walked together pointing each other to Christ, praying and asking the Lord to give us grace that we may believe this truth that the day that we die, we're going to see Jesus. And oh, what a day that'll be. May our Lord grant grace to bring us to that day with confidence that God's word has never proved false, but always true. And that when we get to that final day, that we will not get to that final day wondering and doubting and concerned whether this day is in fact going to be our best day or our worst day what in the world will happen no we will trust this truth that this day because i am christ i will be with my savior hebrews 8 18 says we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Listen, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. We will close our our eyes that last time believing that this is our best day. Because our Savior is awaiting us. He is true and we go to be with Him. This This is the better day. The day of death. I pray, brothers and sisters, that we examine our hearts. We examine our hearts. I pray that this first verse will challenge us in how our heart so often clings to the vain things of this world. And we're so apt to want to stay here and live more in this day, to, to treasure our day of birth instead of our day of death. That we're constantly fixing our eyes on what we can have more here, only to find that it'll sift through our fingers just like everything else has. I pray that we will live our lives fixed, with our hearts fixed upon this heavenly promise of glory. That we will come to enter into that better day, that day of death, when we will go to be with our Savior. Oh, that our lives will be lived for that. Oh, that our lives will be aimed for that day. Now, we all struggle with that, don't we? None of us are there yet. Our hearts are not as fixed heavenward as we would like for them to be. Many of us struggle, some of us a lot, with this understanding of of death. So we have verse 2 to help us here. Verse 2 is is to help us to, to shape and inform our lives so that we'll be better able to fix our hearts on this better day. And point number two is this better place that we need to go in order to allow our hearts to be shaped rightly and appropriately for the things of heaven. And to unfetter our hearts from the things of this world. We have here a better place. Look with me at verse 2, if you will. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. We should not make more of this than actually there is. Even though this proverb is something we know... We don't naturally prefer this proverb. 
We also don't naturally accept this proverb. We don't want to live this way. Attending a funeral, going to the house of mourning, does have more value. Because, this is why, because everything we have learned in the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes is true. Our lives are very short. Ecclesiastes says, passing like a shadow. Death is quite inevitable and sure. There's no way any of us are going to get around it. And then life is full of so many vain things. It's like striving after wind when we try to strive after the things of this world. So he's saying it's better then to go to this place of mourning instead of going to this place of feasting. Now, these truths cannot be ignored. We can pretend like they don't exist, but they're there. We can't avoid them. So it's better then for us to understand that when we go to a funeral, we are more able to understand the world as it is, what really is happening, than any time when we go to a party or a festival of any sort. I'd like to make a couple of observations real quickly. Some application maybe that will be helpful for us as we consider this truth that it's better to go into a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Our culture despises the truth of God's word. And I'm not sure if our culture despises any truth more than the fact that the things of this world are vanity or vain. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is one of the many truths that our culture just refuses. It loathes. It doesn't desire to accept or to acknowledge. And so... What's the main tool in the tool belt of our enemy? It's called a lie. It's called deception. It's to veer us away from those things that are true and help us believe things that are instead nice and quaint and encouraging, but not things that are true. These these truths this morning are true and they're good for us, but they're not something that we naturally in our own hearts want to accept. Well, the world is constantly trying to turn us away The prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the father of lies, insists that death will never come to us. We can live as if death never never will happen. And that's a lie. And then when the obvious does happen, and someone in our lives or someone around us does die, what do we do? Because it confronts us. I mean, we we don't know what to do. It's it's right there in front of us. We don't know what to do now. Our loved one has died and, and we live as if death never will happen or somehow things will be okay no matter what. And then they die. There are funerals that we attend in our world, but not anymore. Not just in the world, but also in churches. People who've grown, who have been born and raised in churches now, they don't go to funerals anymore. What do we go to now? We go to celebrations of life. These are more encouraging. They're nice. It's amazing how the enemy will have us close our eyes, put our fingers in our ears, and scream loudly until our face is red so that we can avoid the consequences of death and not even call it what it is. By turning the very time, the very God-ordained opportunity to speak of how life is vain and the glories of heaven are far more valuable, even churches, even Christians have turned that opportunity to say, yes, death causes us to acknowledge and to face the fact 
that life is short, we need to live for something other than this, we take that very moment and we turn it into a celebration of life. In other words, a celebration of vanities. We, we've, by the enemy's prompting, by the, by, the, by the enemy's very catechizing and discipling us, and I, this is one of the things I want us to understand. Brothers and sisters, we don't realize how much the world is informing our thinking and not the Bible. We just assume that the Bible is informing our thinking and we're pretty much generally Christian, but we're not. We are far more catechized and discipled by the world and its thinking. It is Satan that turns funerals into celebrations of life so that we can wonder and glory and exalt in the worth of all the fleeting vanities of this world again. At the very moment when we can declare that there's a God in heaven and we're going to stand before him one day and we might ought to get our lives in order and turn away from the celebration of life and turn to the life that we can find eternal. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us find that we are far less biblical than we think we are. Don't think that just by hanging out here at church or hearing a sermon on Sunday or going to Sunday school, that you have a right, accurate understanding of things. It requires a pouring over God's word. It requires a spirit work in our lives to help us see that, brothers and sisters, it is better to go to the house of mourning where there is mourning. And for us to acknowledge that death and hell awaits all of us, and we must do business with our God. The next thing I want us to notice as well is this, and that is, that we're not forbidden from going to the house of feasting. You see here, it tells us that there's a value in the house of mourning that's not in the house of feasting. But it doesn't say, and do not ever go to the house of feasting. In fact, we find that the Lord Jesus himself went to a wedding and even brought the wine, so to speak, to the wedding, right? But he also went to the funeral of his best friend Lazarus. Now, he messed that funeral up. But, you know, Jesus just goes to places like that and just, just stirs things up there. But, but the idea here is this, is that our Lord went to both weddings and to funerals. So we are to be going to, we, are, we will in our lives go to places of feasting and places of mourning. But the point here is this, is that when we go to the place of mourning, we need to realize that these are the places. These are the places that are better. These are the places that are better because it causes us to do business with our souls. To confront what is real. The final application, the first was my disfavor for celebration of life. And I don't think it's a sin that people call it that. I, I want to be careful there. I, I, I get ramped up about that. But um, I, I'm going to be calling a funeral. And if, if you come to me and say, hey, can you do a celebration of life for my whatever? I'm like, I'll be glad to do a funeral. And, and that's how that'll be. So I'm not going to get bent out of shape. And we're not going to save the world by changing the, the, the verbiage. But... Anyway, I want us to be aware that, of that. Second is I wanted us to understand that we should and we are to go to houses of feasting as well as houses of mourning. Thirdly, in, uh, in way of application from this truth, I want us to consider is this. Parents, take your children to funerals. I was discussing this sermon um, with Evan as we were walking this week, and he said, last year I went to three funerals. I thought that was interesting, which he's that way. He knows exactly. He's got his calendar in his head. But, um, but it, it is noteworthy that he was able to say, I went to three funerals. He knew exactly how many. He knew who they were. Many of you were there with him. It was in those houses of mourning that we were able to 
consider the things of God. Consider our lives again and to reflect on the things that are most important. Parents, I fear that you will break your neck and move heaven and earth to get to every birthday party of a two-year-old on Saturday for the rest of your life. That is not, that is not better. I mean, if you've done that, then you know that is not better, right? But you will break your neck and move heaven and earth for your kids to go to a birthday party, but then you're hesitant to take them to a funeral. Don't do that. This truth is true for you and it's true for your children. Better for them to go to the house of mourning and see their, 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 lo- their loved ones, their congregation, the people that they're here with on Sunday morning, they're gathering for that funeral, and they're, and, they're, and they're grieving, and they watch this together with those who love them around them, loving them and caring for them, they will learn far more about the gravity of life and the need for their souls to cling to an eternal things by going to a funeral than they ever will by the birthday parties filled with balloons, cake, and presents that they can't even find by the end of the week. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Notice the next line here. It says, for this is the end of all mankind. It's giving a reason. You see, what it's saying is that the reason it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting is because every man has to face death. The funeral then is better for us because it sobers us of all the things that so often are in this world that are foolish and light and frivolous. It shakes us from those and helps us realize, wait a minute, if my loved one, my friend or my colleague or my brother or my neighbor, if they died, when will be my day? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. We don't know. None of us know when our day will be. I remember being a little kid sitting in a sermon and um, I don't even know where my parents were. I don't know if they brought me or I ended up there somehow. But I remember thinking the pastor kept talking about going to heaven. He wanted to go to heaven. Let's, let's go to heaven. And everybody was cranked up to go. And I was thinking as a kid, nope, not yet. I, I'm, I don't want to get on that bus right now. I'm, I'm fine. I'll, I'll hang out here. You guys go. And, and I, I, was, I remember that as a child. This is an opportunity, moms and dads. Today's sermon is an opportunity for you to sit down with your children and talk to them about these things. Talk to them about your, the God who is good. Um, there's, there's great opportunity for you to read scripture with them. Um, read over Psalm 23 with your child. Let them know how God will care for them and will be their shepherd and love them. This is the end of all mankind. This is what will happen to all of us. We need to turn from, unfetter our hearts from the light and frivolous things of this world. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It is true. Every man must reckon with this fact. All of us will one day die and stand before God. This is where working through our catechisms, as we do on Sunday mornings and in our homes, Lord willing, uh, during the week, it's so good for our hearts in our congregation because we come to questions not too long into our catechism like question 40. Question 40 and question 42 are not questions that are actually in other catechisms. The Westminster Catechism doesn't have this, but the Baptist Catechism does, and I'm thankful for it. It's the last questions in the category entitled, What Man is to Believe About God? Question 40 asks this, What benefits do believers receive from Christ? At their death. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? The souls of believers 
are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their grave until the resurrection. That's not the last question. The last question in this section is question 42. But what shall be done to the wicked at their death? The souls of the wicked shall at their death be cast into the torments of hell, and their bodies lie in their graves to the resurrection and judgment of the great day. Would you this morning lay these things to heart? Look at the end of verse three, excuse me, look at the end of verse two. And the living will lay it to heart. Will you lay these things to your heart? Will you consider these things? Will you ponder these things? This requires us to set aside the frivolous of the world. It doesn't mean to go into the depths of morbid understanding, but simply reflecting on the fact that God has made us for a time. We're living right now in the day that we're living in. That God is, and His grace has brought us to this day, this period. And now we have the opportunity to reflect on verses 1 and 2 together as a congregation this week and begin thinking, how do I live my life? Do I live it as if my birthday was the best thing in the world? Or am I living it as if my last day on earth will be my best day? Am I living my life knowing that the house of mourning is where I'm really, I'm really discipled? I'm really discerning. I'm, I'm better able to understand life for what it really should be when I go to a house of mourning. The point is that by going to the house of mourning, those who are living will have an opportunity to consider their souls standing before God. So we see from these two questions then, the two questions I just read, that there are only two kinds of people that are sitting in this room this morning. There are those who the scriptures call believers in Christ and those who do not believe in Christ, which are called the wicked. These are titles that scripture gives those two categories of people. The wicked person, make note, the wicked person is not someone who is desperately attempting to do all kinds of harm and evil to everyone around them. Their lives are filled with sorrow and they're wanting to place sorrow upon all the world around them. That's not the wicked. That's what we think the wicked are. No, the wicked, the wicked in Scripture are described as the person who lives their life according to their own desires. For their own ends. By their own standard. For their own good. That's what the wicked is described as in Scripture. This person may very well be a moral person, maybe even a good person by many people's standards or explanation. But in fact, he's living his life for his own kingdom and for his own pleasure. This person is wicked in the evaluation that is most important, and that is this one, in the eyes of God. Because it doesn't matter what these people sitting around you here this morning think. What matters is what God thinks. For God is the standard of what is righteous and good and no one else is. The Bible says that we are all by nature sinners and rebellious toward God, wanting our own way. And because of our sin, God is our enemy. For God is righteous and just, true and perfect in who He is and all that He does. 
Therefore, he must punish all unrighteousness with his righteous wrath. However, all those who turn from living your life for yourself and for the pleasures here on earth and turn to Christ as Lord, surrendering to him by faith and trusting his righteous life lived for your righteousness and his death on the cross as a payment for your sin will be forgiven and delivered from living under the bondage of the empty promises of the commercials that confront and convince you every day that the world is worth it. And there will be the only place that you can have happiness. There is no true satisfaction or joy, brothers and sisters, in this world. According to the scriptures, there is only vanity to be found there. So turn to Christ by faith, trusting Him. For in Christ will your soul be satisfied, and in Christ will you know joy. In Christ will your soul be unshackled from the dungeon of this world. By faith in Christ, God will no longer be your enemy, but instead you will have peace with God, the Scripture says. Come to Christ by faith, by receiving from Him the better sacrifice and receive from Him the better life than any life that this world can promise you under the sun. This morning, I want us to consider point three. Better emotion. These last two points are going to be a little shorter because the first two I feel really establish the foundation of the text. Verses three and four, the better emotion. We're a therapeutic society and we have a difficult time understanding emotions biblically. But let us consider biblically what emotions God wants us to consider as better See if this works, if you talk to somebody in the secular world this week. Find out from them what they think about this verse. It's very contrary to our natures. Very contrary to what we often think. Very contrary to what the world thinks. And it is this, verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter. Why? For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This sorrow... This being mentioned here is either from sin or from the outward troubles of one's own life or the troubles of lives that are around you. So your heart is sorrowful and burdened because of the sin that's around you and the sin that's within you. This sorrow, our text says, is better than laughter. It's better. It's to be preferred. How can this be? Our text tells us what it means when it says, it says, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, the English translation doesn't quite get at it. Let me explain it a little, maybe bring some more clarity here. The thought here is this, that by the sadness of one's face, the heart, one's heart is put right. In other words, one heart, one's heart is better situated, better able to evaluate and approach life rightly and appropriately when there's sorrow in their life. They're better, if you will, suited to live this life, not only with the sorrows, but also with the joys. It is not the person who is constantly insisting on living a life where there's an epic, fulfilling, wonderful experience constantly in their lives, but the person who is, if you will, able to, as we read this morning, able to rejoice with each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. It's the man or woman who's willing to say, you know what? 
The Lord has given me my life with my hardships and struggles and difficulties, but I'm not going to make it about my life. I'm going to lean into one another's lives. I'm going to look at other people's hearts. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to point them to Christ. I'm going to help them with their sorrows. I'm going to enter into this world of brokenness, acknowledging that my best day is going to be the day I die. But right now, I'm given the stewardship and the opportunity to serve and love those who are broken and burdened around me and they are walking with sorrows as well. I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm going to weep with those who weep. And I'm going to live a life worthy of my Savior. We're not called to be somber all the time. We're not called to walk around and kick the can and be Eeyore. No, but instead we're to take our lives seriously. When we take our lives seriously, we will better be able to find joy where joy is necessary. And we're better able to deal with things that are hard in our lives as they will come to us. Matthew Henry, one of the Puritan commentators, tells a story of a great statesman in Queen Elizabeth's time who retired from public life in his latter days and gave himself up to serious thought, it says. His former merry companions came to visit him and told him that he was becoming somber. No, he replied, I am serious, for everyone around me is serious. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in interceding for us. The Spirit is serious in striving for us. The truths of God are serious. The spiritual enemies that are around us are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. The poor lost sinners are serious in hell right now. And why then should you and I not be serious as well? Oh, may we turn away from the constant pressing of our lives toward pleasure and ease and comfort. May we acknowledge that we live in a world that needs our hearts sober and able to address the difficulties that are there. It is better, it is better, brothers and sisters, to be a man or woman of sorrow than of laughter. One who's always looking for a good time is not one who will help anybody today. One who is willing to lean into that brother or sister's life that's struggling and burdened and overwhelmed, willing to love them, not just circle the wagons, I've got my own problems, but be able to lean into one of those lives. That is the better, that is the better emotion. Fourthly, the better word, the better word, verses five and six. We'll see finally this better word in verses five and six. It says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. It still shocks me when I am talking to people, either in their marriage or just in their personal lives, and I begin addressing sin, and they become overwhelmed and Shaking. I can't believe you're calling me a sinner. And, and, and they're shocked when I'm not surprised when they say that. I'm like, yep, you are. We are. We're all sinners. There's, there's really, it's amazing to me how many people do not acknowledge the sin in their own lives and in their own hearts. Now, Nobody likes rebuke. I don't like rebuke. You, you don't like rebuke. I, I realize that. Everybody wants to guard themselves and protect themselves. I realize that. But we see in our text here that it's better for a man to hear rebuke of the wise 
than to hear the songs of fools. The point here is this. It is, it is better for you to have one on one conversation with a wise brother or sister about your sin than it is for you to turn your music up loud and listen carefully to all the world as it wants you to drink and party your problems away. That's foolish. Know that rebuke from a wise person is done lovingly. It's done faithfully. Um, no one person in here is called the, uh, has the gift of rebuking, right? There's not one person here, you know, I'm the rebuker and all of you guys just need to listen to me, that kind of thing. That, that's, that's not how it works in any, in any marriage, in any congregation. We're in each other's lives. And we need to be just as careful and just as adamant to be seeing sin in our own hearts than we are in seeing sin in other people's lives. Not just letting us hold on to our sin, but a brother or sister coming to us and saying, this is something that I'm seeing. Is this something that you need to be aware of? Is there a way that I can pray for you about that? You're not simply just handing them this sin and saying, hey, listen, you're blowing it in this way or these thousand ways. Here, here's, here's all the things you're blowing it in, and I hope you can figure it out in, in good, good day. No, you're walking to that person and saying, listen, I'm here, brother. I'm here, sister. I want to walk with you through this. I see these things in your life, and, and because they're sin, they're not good for you. They're bad for you. Can I pray with you? Can I encourage you? Can I point you to Scripture and text that you can lean on and trust in and place your lives on to anchor on? so that you can move away from this sin. None of us do this quickly. We like to justify ourselves. We like to defend ourselves. But we are sinners. And we need, and it is good for us to receive rebukes. Brothers and sisters, if you are married, you need to make a regular practice of asking your spouse, is there any particular way that you see in my life where I'm sinning regularly? Will you speak into my life in that regard? You need to come to your spouse and let them know, here's areas where I, where I personally, as I'm looking at the Word of God, I see Scripture where I'm sinning in these particular areas. We need to go to one another. Don't worry. I, was, I, I have on my notes, actually. Ask your kids, but you don't have to ask your kids. They'll be glad to tell you that you're a sinner in every way without you even asking them. They'll, they'll come right forward with it, no matter what. They'll, they'll be glad to tell you exactly how you're sinning in particular ways. I would encourage you as well to give permission, men, to other men. Give permission, women, to other women to speak into your life. Ask them, tell them, I need you to look into my life. I want to give you permission anytime, any day, when you see something in me or around me, I want you to speak into that. Let me know and walk with me through that. I love you and I know you love me. Help me with this. We need to be willing to receive the rebuke. We need to be willing to receive correction. Why? Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Don't be a fool. Proverbs 13.18 says, Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Listen to this, Proverbs 13.1, A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Finally, Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself gives shame to his mother. Rebuke your children. Bring them under the law of God. Help them understand their need to repent and turn to Christ and to walk in obedience and faith in Christ. 
May the Lord grant us grace as a congregation that we might love one another well enough to point each other to Christ and to point each other away from sin. Look with me here. This memorial wordplay, this memorable wordplay of an illustration in verse 6 of just how useless a fool and his folly really is. Look at verse 6, if you will. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, this is memorable because in the Hebrew, this is actually a kind of a rhyme. The word for the word for thorns and the word for pot in the Hebrew sound similar. The word for thorns is uh, serum, and the word for pot is seir. And so it sounds very similar. So when it's said in Hebrew, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a saying that's very, very memorable. I like, I like it when English translators try to, try to get at that. So an English translator tried to make this in English, this kind of similarity, and he wrote it this way. Like nettles cracking under kettles. And so you have the, the two similarities there. Great. I, I love it when people try hard to, to make, it, make it right. Many of us know exactly how this works. Many of us have been out clearing land. And you have a big section of thorns and briars, dry thorn bushes, and you throw those into the fire. There's a lot of popping, a lot of crackling. There's, there's a lot of noise. Sounds like there's a lot happening there. But just in a few seconds, those thorns are completely burned up. And there's nothing really to show for it. There's no heat that was really given off. It was, it was there a minute and then gone immediately. That's exactly what's being said here in verse 6. In the same way, the laughter of a fool, it's loud and showy. It's also often just everybody's acknowledging it and seeing it. And yet, it's worthless. It's here a moment and then gone later. And according to our passage, look at the end of verse 6. Finally, when all is said and done, this also... Is vanity. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, as we consider the better day, the better place, the better emotion, and the better word, we need to approach the Lord's table with this in mind that the Lord will teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. We need to consider this morning, as we come to the table, Christ our Savior, who is one that we can trust as our prophet, who reveals to us all wisdom and good for our souls. Christ is our priest who lived the perfect and good life. He is our righteousness by faith as well as makes intercession for us when we call upon his name for wisdom and forgiveness. Christ is one that we can trust as our king who triumphs over our foolish hearts and conquers all our foolishness in our lives that we might walk in a manner worthy of his goodness and his wisdom. Our lives are short, and the world around us is pursuing vanity. When we come to this table this morning, we are declaring again that the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, is our great good and our great hope. He is the reason we have hope for the better day that is the day of our death. He's the reason why we can live knowing that that better place, the house of mourning, is the place where we will really do business with God. He is the reason why we have this better emotion where sorrow will cause us to lean into one another's lives and love each other well and serve each other carefully. He is the reason why we have an understanding of this better word, this rebuke from a wise one who turns us from our sin and reminds us of the deliverance we have in Christ. Promised 
is the day, a better day, in a better country, when we will have a heavenly reward, one promised by our Savior, who says he will make known to us our end, what is the measure of our days. He will make us know that we are indeed just fleeting people. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Psalm 39, 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we're going to hope in him.